When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Welcome to the Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1. I am Patrick Beeman, your host. Today's episode is uh, based on the top three viruses as defined by Dr. Ken Rosenthal, uh, whose microbiology and immunology episodes you can check out on the Study Smarter channel from 2017. Today, we're covering viruses. Those top three you should know are HIV, HSV, and influenza. We have a question touching on each, including an example from our All Audio QBank, which you can get access to on the Inside the Boards app. You should go download it on the iOS App Store right now to have all our podcasts in one place. Meditations designed to help you de-stress during dedicated study periods, and of course, subscriptions to our All Audio QBank. In the next episode, we will cover the top three bacteria you should know. And of course, we're not trying to give you an exhaustive explanation of these bugs, but rather something bite-sized and digestible that you can take with you on test day. Thank you for listening, and here we go. A 19-year-old male presents to the clinic with a three-week history of painful lesions on his penis. They first appeared approximately two weeks after having sexual intercourse with a new partner. His past medical history is unremarkable. His vitals are normal. Physical exam reveals clear, tender vesicles on his phallus. Which of the following is the most likely cause of these symptoms? Is it A, HSV2, B, human papillomavirus, C, molluscum contagiosum, or D, HHV8? And the correct answer here is HSV2, also known as herpes simplex virus type 2. This is a bit of an easy one, I would say, unless, of course, you're a first year um, just starting out or maybe not uh, in medical school at any rate. Um, HSV2 is the most common cause of genital herpes and is an extremely contagious bug. The incubation period is roughly a couple weeks and can be spread through secretions from the mouth or genitals 
during sexual intercourse or any skin-on-skin contact. Some things you want to know about HSV. Let's take uh, herpes viruses in general. Number one, they're enveloped, double-stranded, linear viruses. HSV-1 is transmitted through respiratory secretions and saliva. And the clinical syndromes it tends to cause are gingivostomatitis, keratoconjunctivitis, herpes labialis, i.e. cold sores, herpetic whitlow, look for a dentist who for some reason wasn't wearing gloves on your exam, and if they have a uh, painful finger with a vesicular lesion, probably herpes. Uh, It also can cause a temporal lobe encephalitis. A notable finding there uh, that you can see mentioned on exams is olfactory hallucinations, and it can also cause esophagitis or erythema multiforme. Importantly, the most commonly latent uh, place where it uh, stays is in the trigeminal ganglia. It's the most common cause of sporadic encephalitis, which presents with altered mental status, seizures, and or aphasia. HSV-2 is spread primarily by sexual contact and perinatally as a baby passes through the birth canal. It principally causes herpes genitalis, genital herpes, and um, uh, neonatal herpes infection, uh, encephalitis. It's most commonly latent in sacral ganglia, and notably viral meningitis is more common with HSV-2 than with HSV-1. Keep in mind that both HSV-1 and HSV-2 can cause genital herpes. Um, With uh, uh, HSV-1, the genital herpes variety tends to be a little less uh, virulent. Um, The frequency of eruptions or episodes um, tend to be less. The severity of the uh, symptoms also tends to be less. And people can get genital herpes by receiving oral sex from somebody who has, for instance, a cold sore. When it comes to genital herpes, HSV-2 is a little bit more common. Most patients are actually asymptomatic, hence its great prevalence as a disease, um, where viral shedding can occur even in the absence of symptoms or lesions. Notable physical exam findings or symptoms are erythema, swelling, tingling, Uh, pain, pruritus, and the lesions, uh, which uh, appear like punched out and may later uh, uh, ulcerate or even uh, coalesce. Um, They can be single or multi-painful red bumps or white vesicles, and typically are on or around the genitals and anus. In general, the pathophysiology of HSV-1 or 2, person is inoculated through mucosal surfaces or small dermal abrasions. Uh, the virus then invades, spreads, and replicates in um, uh, uh, neurons. And after the primary infection, the virus remains dormant in the neuronal ganglions, as mentioned above, trigeminal mostly for HSV-1, and the sacral ganglia mostly for HSV-2. The virus gets reactivated uh, through various triggers like immunodeficiency, stress, trauma, leading to the clinical manifestations noted above. Occasionally and rarely, the virus can disseminate and spread to unique sites like the lungs, GI tract, or eyes, um, as may occur in pregnant patients or patients with severe immunodeficiency. 
most of the time, HSV infections are diagnosed clinically just by a physician looking and saying, yep, looks like herpes. Often or in the review books is mentioned the Zank smear, which is a light microscopy finding uh, showing multinucleated giant cells, which is kind of a nonspecific thing, and eosinophilic intranuclear cowdery A inclusion bodies, also nonspecific. Um, but this test specifically cannot differentiate between HSV-1 and HSV-2. But the gold standard for definitive diagnosis is a viral culture. You can use PCR to detect the viral genotype. And then just a little bit about treatment, since this is step one, you got to know it in and out, through and through, unfortunately. For me as an OBGYN, I'm just like, you need Valtrex. At any rate, treatment is with the guanosine analogs, acyclovir, famcyclovir, valacyclovir. Just to go over the quick and dirty viral replication and infection cycle, a virus needs a host to co-opt its uh, machinery for its own replication. So once the virus attaches and penetrates the host cell, it releases its nucleic acids. The viral genome is replicated. So these nucleoside analogs, the guanosine analogs, acyclovir, that's the usual one. Valacyclovir is a prodrug of acyclovir. All these drugs basically get turned into acyclovir within the body. What happens is the uh, drugs are monophosphorylated by the HSV thymidine kinase, uh, which become active intermediates that are phosphorylated by cellular kinases. And the phosphorylated drug is incorporated into the replicated viral DNA strand. And this terminates the viral DNA synthesis by inhibiting the viral DNA polymerase. In summary, they work by mutating the viral thymidine kinase. These guanosine analogs have very little side effects, but I guess some you should know are a crystal-induced uh, nephropathy, uh, kidney injury, and I'd probably say that's the, the main one. And just a quick mention about one of the distractors, HPV. Uh, you should know that HPV has a crap ton of uh, viral types. 1 and 2 cause cutaneous warts. 6 and 11 cause condyloma cuminata or genital warts. And then types, this is important, 16 and 18, 31 and 33 cause the majority of cervical cancer. There are vaccinations against HPV. Gardasil is the most notable vaccine against HPV, and it is nonavalent, which is an awesome word, and protects against nine different types of the virus. Actually, it may protect against more than that. Uh, but the important ones are 6 and 11 to prevent genital warts, uh, 16, 18, 31, 33, uh, some of the big causes of cervical cancer. Who should routinely get it? Females age 11 to 12, although they may get it as early as nine. And there is a kind of like catch-up or, yeah, catch-up, not like the condiment, but catching up 
uh, when you're behind that extends all the way to age 26. It's also now indicated and has been for a while for males aged 11 to 12 or as early as nine with a catch-up schedule that goes up to 21 for men. You probably just need to know for that that it's a routine vaccine that should be given to kids uh, ages 11 to 12. That might even be too much for step one, but there you go. There's a little bit about HSV and HPV. And let's go on to another question dissection. In this one, we've got a 37-year-old female who presents to the emergency department following a seizure. She reports a one-week history of fever and headache. She has a history of HIV infection uh, for the past five years, but currently takes no medications. Her vital signs are normal, and her physical examination is unremarkable. An MRI of the brain shows multiple ring-enhancing lesions. Question is, which of the following is the most likely causal organism? Is it A, Cryptococcus neoformans, B, Cytolomegalovirus, C, Cryptosporidium parvum, or D, Toxoplasma gondii? And the correct answer here is choice D, Toxoplasma gondii, toxoplasmosis. Given this patient's history of untreated HIV infection, uh, she's at considerable risk for opportunistic infections. The most common diagnoses you need to know uh, that cause ring-enhancing lesions in the CNS are toxoplasmosis and primary CNS lymphoma. Toxo usually uh, presents with multiple ring-enhancing lesions, although CNS lymphoma may also do that. Uh, and you can't differentiate the two just based on the imaging. The symptoms that people get with Toxo are fever, headache, confusion, seizures, and even focal neurologic defects. And there are some extracerebral manifestations like a pneumonitis and a chorioretinitis. Toxoplasma gondii is a uh, protozoan a parasite that most commonly is spread through cat feces and undercooked meat. Some fast facts to remember. In the immunocompetent host, uh, the patients will have kind of like a mononucleosis type of uh, constellation of symptoms, but notably the heterophile antibody test is negative. In patients who are immunocompromised, notably patients with HIV AIDS, the um, parasite can get reactivated and cause these brain abscesses, which are seen as the multiple ring-enhancing lesions. Congenital toxoplasmosis, babies who are born with this neonatally, have a classic triad you should remember. That is chorioretinitis, hydrocephalus, and intracranial calcifications. CHI, C-H-I. And here's a mnemonic I'm just going to make up right now. And hopefully, if you're faced with this question on the exam, you'll be like, that was weird, made no sense, but now I remember. And that is CHI-T, C-H-I-T, for toxoplasmosis. So the classic triad, chorioretinitis, hydrocephalus, and intracranial calcifications in toxo. Hopefully that's helpful. The most common method of trans transmission is uh, cysts within undercooked meat. 
There are oocysts in cat feces, which is why we tell pregnant women not to change the litter box, um, because if infected, they can cross the placenta and lead to congenital uh, toxoplasmosis in the neonate. Treat toxoplasmosis with sulfadiazine and pyrimethamine. And finally, here is a question from our 2017 Study Smarter series. Uh, it's been updated a little bit, but don't forget you can check out all of those old episodes for even more high-yield virus learning by just scrolling back to the old episodes. A five-year-old girl is brought to the pediatric office because of a fever for the past three days. Her mother reports her daughter also has a constant cough and runny nose. After speaking to other parents from the daycare her daughter goes to, some of the other children have also experienced similar symptoms. The mother believes that her daughter is allergic to eggs and so only receives vaccines absolutely required by her school. Physical examination reveals a temperature of 39 degrees Celsius or 103 degrees Fahrenheit with injection of the nares and oropharynx. Which of the following is the most common complication of the most likely diagnosis? And the answer choices are choice A, asthma, choice B, bronchitis, Choice C, febrile seizure. Choice D, otitis media. Or choice E, pneumonia. And the correct answer is choice D, otitis media. Otitis media is a very common complication of this diagnosis. And the diagnosis is influenza virus. So let's go about why we knew this was influenza. First of all, we have a young kid. She's five years old. With, and that's a very common age for flu to be transmitted. Uh, really, all populations are susceptible to flu, and all people should be getting the flu shot yearly. But that brings us to our next point. This kid is not getting all of her shots. It's alluded to that the mother is only getting the shots the school absolutely requires. Um, if you know about the influenza viral vaccine, that would be something that is often required in healthcare workers and sometimes required at schools. But unlike many of the shots that you get at ver certain various ages um, at the doctor's office, the influenza uh, shot does not have to, it's not usually a mandatory shot and is not usually required. So that kind of is a clue of the diagnosis right off the bat. They're giving you that information. Also, the child is having flu-like symptoms. She has injection of the eyes, and she's got a cough, a runny nose, and she's febrile, 103 degrees. Uh, the patient is most likely at risk for the complication of acute otitis media because this is the most prevalent complication we actually see with influenza virus. And it's accounted for by the fact that flu leaves the body susceptible to bacterial opportunistic infections in the respiratory tracts, in the upper respiratory tracts, in the sinuses, um, specifically otitis media, bacterial infections, as well as viral infections. It is also believed that the flu virus itself can cause otitis media. So this is seen in actually 10 to 20% of patients that are positive for flu. Let's talk a little bit more about viruses because we haven't really gotten to talk about viruses much yet. So what are the big kind of classifications for the structures of viruses? So we can really kind of be reminded of that. So we have naked viruses with an icosahedral capsid. 
We have enveloped viruses with an icosahedral capsid, and we have enveloped viruses with a helical capsid. And then we have to remember that the lipid bilayer is what we're going to see in the enveloped virus with the icosahedral capsid. We are going to touch on that again in a minute, but remember the lipid bilayer is how we can get surface proteins. And those surface proteins are important because they are part of the virulence mechanism for the virus, but also part of our host defense. So they, they tie into us creating vaccines. Antigenic shift is part of this. We'll get into it in a second. Let's go through viral genetics really quickly. They have four main mechanisms by which viruses kind of have their own unique way of being pathogenic and, re and affecting their DNA and their protein synthesis in ways that help them be better at infecting humans. So recombination is the first mechanism. This is something that you should know. It's just two chromosomes crossing over, blah, 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 kind of sharing genes through this mechanism. They can come up with new viruses that are resistant to drugs or resistant to host defenses, yada, yada. Reassortment is another good one that is used for viruses with segmented genomes. The one that we need to remember that has a segmented genome is influenza virus. The fact that influenza virus is able to use the segmented genome to exchange genetic material allows for very virulent strains of this virus, like the H1N1, because there was a lot of reassortment of viruses from pigs and viruses from birds and humans all within a similar strain of the influenza A virus, they were able to recombine and reassort and, and recombine into a virus that was not only difficult to prevent with a vaccine, but happened to be very virulent and did result in a lot of deaths and actually was a pandemic. So reassortment is a very important tool for, for these segmented um, viruses. Complementation is when one, two viruses are infecting the same person or present in the same place, and one of them makes a non-functional protein, and the other virus is able to use that non-functional protein and make it functional for both of the viruses. This is a very simplistic way of stating it, but the important thing to remember is that complementation is the reason that hepatitis D needs hepatitis B to be present in order for it to be infective. The reason is because hepatitis D does not have the envelope protein in order to replicate. It needs hemoglobin, or I'm sorry, it needs hepatitis B surface antigen in order to be able to replicate and infect a host. So remember, hepatitis D is dependent on hepatitis B being present. And then the other mechanism is phenotypic mixing. This occurs with infection by two viruses in one host at the same time. Phenotypic mixing is essentially when some of the proteins created by the genome of one virus are used by the other virus and vice versa. Two viruses infecting at the same time and both kind of increasing the pathogenicity, the virulence, and infectivity of each other, making this bigger, badder virus. So recombination, reassortment, complementation, and phenotypic mixing are the four viral genetics we need to think of. 
most importantly right now for our discussion of influenza, we need to be thinking about the reassortment because of the segmented genome. Let's get back to influenza and talk a little bit more about that specifically. Remember, H. flu, Haemophilus influenza, is a bacteria, not the same as the influenza virus that causes the flu, and that's not what we're talking about. Haemophilus influenza is different. Now we're talking about we're talking about the influenza virus. That is a result of an orthomyxovirus. This is in the family orthomyxovirus. It's an enveloped, negative sense, single-stranded virus with eight different segments. So the segments are what causes the virus to be constantly changing through reassortment and the reason that we have to get a new flu shot every year that contains the viral strains most likely to be seen in the upcoming year. That does require some kind of guesswork on the part of the researchers and for this reason there are years where the flu shot works better than other years. We should also remember about influenza that is an RNA virus. Remember that it is a nucleocapsid surrounded by an outer membrane with these glycoproteins inside the membrane. So remember I talked about we need to talk about this membrane again? Here it is. There's two kinds of proteins you'll remember in the outer membrane of influenza, the hemagglutinin and neuraminidase active proteins. Anchoring the proteins um, inside the lipid bilayer are the M proteins or membrane proteins. There are three types of influenza virus, A, B, and C. A is the only one that can infect things other than humans. So we really are talking about that right now because we're talking, we were talking about the H1N1 strain that uh, kind of stole some pieces from a pig version of the flu virus and a bird version of the flu virus. Um, it was also able to affect humans. And the antigenic differences in the hemagglutinin and neuraminidase protein spikes within the lipid bilayer are the reason that these vaccines have to change every year and it's part of the kind of craftiness of the flu virus because our immune system will learn to recognize a certain arrangement of hemagglutinin and neuraminidase and then the virus will change through reassortment, change the hemagglutinin and neuraminidase, and they're also called HA and NA proteins, and then our immune system no longer recognizes it. Now let's go back and talk about the answer choices. So choice A, and again, the question was, a uh, patient with influenza-type symptoms, what's the most common complication of her diagnosis? We knew her diagnosis was influenza virus, so what's the most common complication of that? And we answered correctly, otitis media. The first choice, A, asthma, would have been possibly a correct answer in a patient with concern for aspiration of aspergillus. Aspergillus spores are everywhere. They're a mold spore that floats in the air all around all of us. It actually is the cause of bread mold. Uh, some people will develop an asthma-type reaction to the aspergillus spores, Probably these are people who already have asthma and just have never had an asthma exacerbation at that point. Probably unlikely that the aspergillus is actually causing them to develop asthma. However, this asthma is not a, a complication known to flu. Bronchitis was choice B. That is the essentially hyperplasia of the mucus secreting glands in the bronchi. It's not a common symptom associated with influenza infections. It can be triggered by viral URIs, allergens, and stress, and is seen a lot in patients who smoke. 
However, doesn't fit the clinical picture here. Not a um, most likely complication of the influenza virus. We will remember that mycoplasma pneumonia causes a mild self-limited bronchitis um, and is actually the number one cause of bacterial bronchitis and pneumonia in teenagers and young adults. Choice C, febrile seizures. Febrile seizures are real, and we learn a lot about them in medical school. However, they're much less common, even during a a high fever, than bacterial infections that cause otitis media associated with fever. Choice C, febrile seizures are real, and we do definitely learn a lot about them in medical school. However, they are an uncommon complication of seasonal flu. They're much less common than obtaining a bacterial infection that causes otitis media. Choice D was otitis media. It's seen in 10 to 20. Some studies even say up to 50% of patients with influenza, but it is definitely very prevalent. And choice E, pneumonia, is occasionally seen, excuse me, with an influenza viral picture because this can leave the immune system suppressed and can leave, lead to a state where there's an increased susceptibility to bacterial superinfections like pneumonia. Uh, a patient with pneumonia would most likely present with some kind of trouble breathing. And if the vignette was going to show you someone with pneumonia, they'd have to give a little bit more choice E, pneumonia. Pneumonia is a complication of influenza virus in that influenza virus can lead to a higher risk of bacterial superinfections, and this can lead to severe illness like pneumonia. The first symptom for these patients, though, would be trouble breathing, and studies have shown that otitis media is still far more common in young patients with influenza than pneumonia is. A few takeaways that we can add on just to remember. This child was five years old, but remember that we never give aspirin to a patient, especially who is infected with influenza or varicella chickenpox, because they can develop severe liver disease, brain disease, also known as Rye syndrome. It's not known why Rye syndrome occurs exactly, but the important thing for you to know is that it can occur if aspirin is given in under two years of age. So always give Tylenol for fever in children. Also remember that otitis media is the most common complication of influenza virus and that streptococcus pneumonia is the most common cause of otitis media in children and strep pneumo is the most common cause of bacterial meningitis in adults. And since this patient didn't get all of her vaccines and that's probably what led to her being infected or could have anyways, Let's really quickly run through to make sure we know our live vaccines versus our killed in our subunit. The live attenuated vaccines shouldn't be given to patients who are immunosuppressed. And we need to be very careful in a patient who's HIV positive and make sure there's not yet immunodeficiency before deciding to give any live attenuated vaccines to these patients. HIV positive patients who do not have signs of immunodeficiency should still be given these vaccines and should be given them immediately, in fact, so that they can develop immunity while they are still able to without the increased risk of having a reactivation of the virus and the virus reverting to a virulent state that could be potentially harmful. 
So the live viruses that we talk about are smallpox, yellow fever, rotavirus, chickenpox or varicella, Sabin polio, and MMR, and influenza, but only the intranasal formulation of influenza. We also have the killed viruses. These ones cannot revert to a virulent state. Rabies, influenza, the injected form, sulk polio, and the hepatitis A vaccine, which you might have gotten if you've ever studied abroad or been to a place where this is more prevalent. And then the other kind of viral vaccine is the subunit vaccine. We have two big ones you should know. Hepatitis B virus has a vaccine that uses the hepatitis B surface antigen to create antibodies against it. And human papillomavirus has a subunit type vaccine that prevents HPV types, those being the serotypes that cause over 80% of infections that lead to both increased risk for cervical cancer and uh, genital warts. So those are the two essentially clinical reasons that we tell patients to get human papillomavirus vaccines. That's all we have for today. Thanks for listening. Join us back next time for the three top bacteria you should know. Check out Dr. Rosenthal's episode from our uh, previous year's Study Smarter series, including the great episode, uh, much lauded by listeners, the 20-minute immune response with a video companion presentation you can find on our YouTube page. Finally, for more high-yield Step 1 learning, go subscribe to Physiology by Physio, an Inside the Boards podcast. There's a link in the show notes. It's high-yield physiology review for the USMLE Step 1 especially, well, and Comlex Level 1. That's all we've got for today. Thanks. Thanks.